our past, out of whatever experiences we have that may color your words and hear you and experience your heart. It's in your risen name we pray. Amen. Let's begin. On the back of your flow sheet, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't matter, I don't think, if you've uh, just started coming to church more recently or you've been coming to church for a long, long time. Chances are you may have heard these words in the past. You know, it may be uh, in Sunday school growing up, you know, church school, um, where the instructor tells you, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It may be going into uh, great-grandma's nursing home and, uh, <laughs> and seeing these words on a cross-stitch pattern hanging on the wall. There's a good chance that you've heard these words before. And I just want to invite you, friends, to hear them again, hopefully, as we prayed uh, for the first time. Because I want to let you in on something. These words that we just heard, these words that I read, these words of Jesus, um, they, they begin the Sermon on the Mount. They begin as the first section, the first category, sometimes called the blessings or, or the beatitudes. Something peculiar about these words is that, is that these words would begin a ministry of Jesus that would eventually lead to his torture, his being beaten up, his own death. These words at the very core, are provocative. These words that we just heard are completely unlike the cross-stitch pattern hanging on grandma's wall. There's something that happened in the meantime. There's some kind of a, a gap between what we think that they mean and what Jesus had them mean. Because Chances are when you heard these words in Sunday school or when you heard these words by seeing them written in cross-stitch pattern on the wall, provocative probably wasn't the word, <laughs> the first word that came to mind. There's a bit of a, a cultural gap, I guess you could say, between Jesus' words starting out the Sermon on the Mount and what we hear today. Uh, this, friends, is the new series that we're getting into here at Encounter, is that for the next few weeks, we're going to explore these Bible verses, these, pas uh, these um, passages that, that we think mean something, that in that time when they were written and passed around and distributed, they meant something entirely different. This series is called The, the Misused Bible. It's uh, popular Bible verses that are misunderstood, misconstrued, altogether misused and applied to today. 
Uh, words that don't have any place in a graduation card for, the no, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That's next week. That once we start pulling back the cultural nuances behind some of these things, you would think, no way would we ever share that with a recent grad. You should come again. That's going to be fun. <laughs> but this morning we take a look at these Bible passages, at this Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. And we try to understand what could be so provocative about these words that I just read, words of Jesus. First of all, we we see the words and they say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, the Sunday school part of it or the the cross-stitch version of these words might say something like, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Children, What does it mean to be poor in spirit and all the children reply? It means, in unison, of course, it means to be totally dependent on God. He said, that's right. So kids, go out there this week and be dependent on God. Kids, what does it mean to to uh, to mourn? He said, mourn over our sins and maybe that of others. That's right. So go out there and maybe, maybe be a little more sensitive this week, would you? What does it mean to be meek? Well, it means to be, to be humble and to have an, an attitude of, of being gentle. That's right. So let's try to be a little bit more gentle with other people's hearts this week. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It means that I really want to do good and to become a better person. So friends, let's get out there and be better people this week. Now that's something that not only works well in a Sunday school lesson, I think it works well in a cross-stitch pattern as well. Problem is, it's not provocative. The problem is, and Jesus saying these words certainly wouldn't lead to his death. Problem is, it's not actually what Jesus said. And then it points us to this great this great split or this, this great divide between, between the implications of following after Jesus and, and pursuing God's heart genuinely and what is at the heart of Christianity, the faith that is so grounded in Jesus Christ. Those statements that I just rolled off about being a better person and being more gentle, all good things, don't get me wrong, but they're all imperatives. They're all commands. Uh, any idea in the Sermon on the Mount that the Beatitudes or the blessing statements start? Any idea how many commands or imperatives there are in the Sermon on the Mount? And there's plenty. The do's, don't statements in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount over three chapters, 66 times Jesus said, hey, do this. Turn the other cheek. Forgive one another. Hey, don't do this. Don't lust after your neighbor. Don't hate your brother. 66 do-don't statements. Clearly, there is this sense of this imperative in following after Jesus. Make certain demands on how we live our lives. Any idea how many imperatives are in the first section, the blessings, the, the beatitudes that start off the Sermon on the Mount? Zero. Not one. In Jesus' entrance into his official ministry, there's going to be demands of following him. 
But his first word, blessing. It's an announcement. It's a declaration. Lots of different people have guessed what, what blessed even means. Some people say uh, blessed means something like uh, happy, but, but more of a profound, a, a deep happy, a, a blissful satisfaction in the Lord. Other people have said it means that God is on your side. And what's so perfect about that, in the words of uh, Philip Yancey, who wrote like a hundred books on this, <laughs> he says, uh, I guess the, the closest cultural adaptation of the word blessed as Jesus uses it in the Beatitudes could be something like lucky. Because it stresses that it's by no means anything that what we have done or what we have achieved, but it's simply stating the fact that for whatever reason, God seems to be on your side. It's a beautiful picture. I love it. Especially when you combine blessed with what comes right next in the first line. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's cool because the passage that I just read, the Beatitudes, it opens and it ends with blessed, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you start to see this kind of like connection in the words of Jesus. And you say the, 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 the life lived now where it just seems like God is on your side is somehow connected to the life to come. Heaven, the kingdom of heaven, then later on. And the, the life, you know, the blessed life lived now to get to heaven. And we just, you can, you can feel it, right? The, this, this sense of, of heaven being created here on earth. And it's a wonderful place. You know, forget about the Secretary of State with, with like the harps, you know, in the waiting room, except for more clouds and less like news on the screens. No, no, heaven is like the best version of this earth, like what it was supposed to be in the first place without all the brokenness and without all the sin. You know, heaven, we can see this like close friendships without clicks. We can see uh, laughter without this fear of insensitivity. We can see heaven as this, this wonderful place where there's, there's close, there's intimacy without temptation to immorality. The blessed home is marked by mealtimes full of stories, laughter without rudeness, inappropriate jokes, without greed, without malice, without strife, without anything that eclipses joy. So says Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven. It's a beautiful thought between the blessed life here and the heaven to come. Except for one thing. In the passage that we just read, what lies between blessed and heaven is being poor in spirit. Now that would work well if we're talking about the cross-stitch version of the Beatitudes. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it means to, to be dependent on God. Yeah. But not like really dependent on God. Let's not go overboard with it, right? You know, I think there's two ways that you could go wrong in, in what we understand poor in spirit to mean and what Jesus actually meant. The, the first way is to say, you know, I am something in spirit. I'm not really that. I just kind of pretend to be. I'm not really, 
I'm an NBA point guard in spirit. I'm not really an NBA point guard, but on Tuesday nights at the rec center on my co-ed lead, but I am draining them. I am in spirit. Now, of course, that's an expression that hasn't come up until more recently, right? I mean, that's no way that Jesus meant that. As Jesus said it in his time, it meant something more like being, being spiritually poor. Now we get at this depending idea. And which I love, you know, depending on God. It's something that we always need. And of course, a follower of Jesus would, would call themselves spiritually poor and, and dependent on God. The blessed life marked by the Instagram sunsets, right? And the, and the double rainbows. And to say, I can't manufacture those. I'm dependent on those. I am blessed because I have from the Lord beautiful sunsets and double rainbows. That would be great. Except the words that Jesus has at his disposal to describe poor are many. <laughs> kind of like how um, you know, Eskimos have like 30 different words for snow. And by Eskimos, I mean people who live in Grand Rapids. Uh, there's a lot of different ways we can describe this stuff. And we have a, a lot of different tools to choose from. Jesus in his day and age, he's got a lot of different tools or words to describe, what a, a, to describe the poor among him. And the word that he chooses is the word so far, so extreme, so far onto one side that he, he picks the word that describes the most abject poverty kind of poor. This continuous cycle that one would have absolutely no hope of ever breaking out of. Only it's not just, it's not in economic terms that somebody is abjectly and and continuously cyclically poor. It's worse, it's in spiritual terms. And so when he says poor in spirit, the person kind of coming to mind is one who is smarmy at best, disingenuous, just cannot be trusted, do anything to get ahead. The abjectly poor in spirit is one who is morally reprehensible, who is, in another word, spiritually bankrupt. That does not belong in the cross-stitch version. It doesn't make any sense why Jesus would look at this person and to say, blessed. It doesn't jive with what we think of as the best, the blessed life. And so too, the further we go on in the list, the less sense it makes Blessed are those who mourn. And I'd love to be able to say, blessed are those of you who mourn over your sins or maybe those of the ones closest to you who are are hurt by those sins. But Jesus doesn't say that. He just simply says, blessed are those who mourn. Over, Over what? Over anything. If you have something to be deeply sad over, blessed because you'll be comforted. I'm sorry, Jesus, um, (laughs) wouldn't the blessed life look like the life where we never had anything to mourn and be comforted over in the first place? Wouldn't the blessed life look like all comfort and no mourning? Apparently not. And it doesn't make any sense. Blessed are the meek. 
you know, the people with the attitude of just, just gentleness. Blessed are the meek who, you know, like Jesus, having long, blonde, flowing hair and bright blue eyes and kids, babies, and there's always a lamb in the shot. <laughs> Blessed are the gentle, humble ones. But Jesus isn't describing an attitude. Meek, in its original sense, describes an affliction, a state in life. The meek may, as a byproduct, in fact, be humble, but they're humble because they're the little ones. The meek among us are the ones that have no influence, have no power. The meek are the ones that nobody's head turns to for a decision to be made. The meek are the ones that everybody else look down on and there's no one left to look up to them. These are the meek. And the meek are the ones where we say, you know what? This is starting to make sense. You, meek, you guys can't have heaven, but earth belongs to the people in power. Earth belongs to the entrepreneurs. Earth belongs to the ones who have something to say and people to rally behind them. And Jesus says, no, no. The meek get heaven and earth. And it doesn't make any sense. One more, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't just want to be good, be the best version of themselves, be the best person that they can be. No, they knew what it was like to be hungry. You just imagine in that time, in that place, being hungry didn't mean mean forgetting a lunch or having it stolen out of the staff refrigerator. No, no, no. Being hungry meant going without. Being thirsty meant being dizzy, being dehydrated, being weary, not having. And if you hunger, and if you thirst for righteousness, you don't have it. And you think, Jesus... There must be some mistake. Of course, not worse, we're going to cross-stitch. But even so, it, it's still, it, it's completely contrary to what, to what we think of as the blessed life. I don't get it. I don't get it. And not only that, I don't like it. <laughs> And I don't think you like it either. And by the way, I, this is not going to be one of those flip kind of turns arounds where, you know, he, he actually means it like this and it always makes so much more sense. No, 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 no. The conditions that he, that he describes, especially in the first four Beatitudes, the, the ones, the Beatitudes of need, as they're called, it doesn't get any better. And there's no reason why you should like it. Because if we're thinking of the blessed life here pointing us towards the heaven to come, being spiritually bankrupt, having no voice, just simply being a a weak little one, having things to, to mourn over, you don't like it because it makes so little of you and I. 
I don't like it because it, it diminishes everything that I am. It makes me so small. Or at least it says these are the desired traits. These are the, the traits that God is on the side of so little. I don't like it for two reasons. Number one, first of all, I don't like having to be diminished. I don't like being small, and I don't think you do either. Number two, I don't like it. Honestly, because I don't actually think I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't think you actually think that you're all that meek. I think that you have a certain sense of righteousness about you. Maybe not everything all put together, but, but at least not starving of it. To the first one, I don't like it because it makes me feel so small, or at least that's desired. That's exactly the point. I love the way that Jesus, being that just genius that he is, from a like poetic literary sense, there's two statements of blessed or blank, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blank, theirs is heaven. He starts out, and it's almost like this, this verbal or, or maybe a, a poetic or literary bridge. You know, how do you go from the, the blessed life here where God is on your side to the heaven to come? And, and it's almost as if there's a bridge to get there in the verse. And that bridge is being poor in spirit. I don't like this because it makes so little of me. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. In my announcement bursting on the scenes, what makes this so provocative is that to get from here to there, what's critical is being spiritually and morally bankrupt, just being completely out. Because that's the side that God is on. Because that is a posture, that's a, that a heart that Christ can finally work with. And to the second point, you know, I don't like it, first of all, because it makes me feel so small. Second of all, because um, maybe, maybe I don't quite think I'm spiritually bankrupt, right? Maybe we, we don't think we're quite so meek. After all, we're in counter church and we meet in a former fitness club and that's really cool. I'm not sure why we laugh at that, but anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I really believe that. In my heart of hearts, don't you? Enter the next three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter the demands of following Jesus creates in your life. Enter those 66 imperatives, those 66 do-don't statements, those 66, hey, you know what? You thought it was good enough not to kill someone. I'm telling you not to kill them in your mind or in your heart. Don't even be angry with your brother. Enter those 66 kicks that Jesus has against us that say, you know what? Don't just love those who love you. Love those who hate you. And by the way, don't lust after anybody as well. Enter those 66 statements of Jesus that just 
punt us all the way back to square one and we read on them and we reflect on them and we realize just how morally off we are and how little we measure up as the quote the psalmist, I'm a worm, not a man. Every time Jesus enters another punch or another kick against our own sense of self-righteousness, he puts us back all the way to square one, the first word blessed. God is now on your side because this is a posture, this is a heart that Christ can work with. The balance between the demands of following Christ and living out a righteous and holy life in the heart of the gospel, Christ's declaration of the bursting onto the scene and saying, blessed God is on your side. There's balance in that by seeing every do, don't, every imperative, every command over your life pushes us back to the cross. You know what's... uh, What's standing on the bridge? What's standing in between uh, heaven, between, sorry, blessed and heaven? I am. And Jesus uh, tells us in delicate words, words, by the way, that we've just sung, a prayer, Lord, rid me of myself. What's standing between here and there is is myself. Um, want to wrap up with just with a quote. This one's going to be. Um, it was hard for me to 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 see it and to think about the uh, the implications. It's a it's a quote by uh, a man named uh, Phil Visker, who in the early '90s uh, created a, a movie production company called Big Ideas Studio, and they produce. Um, the movies that we loved, a lot of us grew up on them as kids, the Veggie Tales uh, with the talking tomatoes and the cucumber. Um, it, it was just awesome. And his movie studios, production company, just took off immediately. And by uh, the year 2000, he was just cranking these things out. His staff grew from 20 to over 200. I mean, he was firing on all cylinders. Everybody wanted a piece of this. They were starting to call him the next Walt Disney. He had that much uh, respect in the industry, and he had that bright of a future. Until things started to turn south. Uh, sales were no longer uh, behind him. They were losing steam. Uh, d- distributors started uh, suing him to get a, a piece of this. And he was losing. Losing sales, losing lawsuits. And in uh, 2003, three years after the peak, 2003, he declares bankruptcy. A big idea, studios is shut down. It's done. And uh, in 2011, he's reflecting back on his time and how he, he genuinely felt like teaching kids the stories of the Bible was, was what God would have him do. He had this moment where he had to step off the bridge, put on 
the condition of meekness, not just the attitude. This is what he said in an interview. I looked back at the previous 10 years and I realized I'd spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. That's morality. He had to take his cross-stitch version of the gospel and in the end crucify it. Jesus isn't asking us to be better people. He's asking us to find our righteousness in him. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate this together uh, as a community and with the church worldwide by uh, taking communion together. Um, if this is your first time taking communion or first time uh, at a church where this is done, I, uh, I hope it, it doesn't put you on the, on the spot uh, or intimidate you at all. Uh, simply what is going on here um, is uh, there's going to be two stations on either side. The little breadcrumbs uh, on the plates already uh, broken up are... Um, gluten-free, if that's a concern for you. Uh, Two stations on either side, we invite you to line up uh, using the outside aisles, uh, take communion. You're going to hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And uh, use the uh, inside two aisles to return to your seat. As those words are said, as those words are spoken to you, I just invite you to consider the bridge that Jesus has, uh, has painted for us. The bridge from where we are to where he's asking us to be by, by diminishing ourselves. <laughs> by seeing how just before him, how little we have to offer. And consider how that's exactly where he wants us to be. Because that's a posture, that's a heart that Christ can work with. If you're not sure about uh, faith, Christianity, if you're still on the journey wondering, uh, that's absolutely uh, okay and safe in this community. Um, we simply love that you're here. And if this isn't a step that you're ready to take yet, uh, we sing the uh, songs during communion and we worship. We continue worshiping together. Um, we invite you to, uh, to still be a part of the community and join with us uh, that way. You can stay seated now after the message, and uh, let's uh, have a word of prayer together. Uh, gracious God, uh, Lord, we, we confess to you that on our good days, we have nothing to offer. Lord, before you, we, uh, we are so diminished, we are so little, but God, mysteriously, somehow in there, there's not strength, there's not our strength, but there's yours. There's not our righteousness or goodness, but better still, Jesus Christ, there's your righteousness. Savior, we ask that you make that real for us now during communion. God, we ask that you make this alive in us throughout this week in the coming months. It's in your name we pray, by your Holy Spirit, amen.